Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My name is Monty Ward and my guest today is Elizabeth Gabay or Gabay. I don't know, is it Gabay or Gabay? How do you say Well, I think, yeah, well, either way, really, it doesn't really matter. I'm not fussy. Elizabeth Gabay, because you're in France. Well, <laughs> Gabay, isn't it? Think of, think of the grape. Think of the grape Gamay. That's always the easiest way to look at it. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast. My guest today is Elizabeth Gabay, which rhymes with Gamay, I've just been told. So Elizabeth Gabay is a master of wine. Elizabeth became a member of the Institute of Masters of Wine in 1998, and she has been based since 2002 in southern France. Whereabouts in southern France are you? Um, I'm just north of Nice, uh, about 70 kilometres north of Nice on the Italian border, um, the national park that bridges Italy and France, and I'm at a 1,000 metres high up in the Southern Alps. Oh, that sounds about... How did you end up there then? Was it a love of Italy or just uh, what, what was the reason? Um, well, we originally, we looked around Provence because I think that I was working a lot with Provence wines at the time and really didn't like it. It was a very, very big expat community, lots of pink villas with blue swimming pools and it really wasn't what we wanted. So... We saw advertised in the village a hotel with 15 bedrooms and my husband and I do like having a party. So we thought we'll look at the hotel. We didn't like the hotel and there was nothing else available. So we looked in Burgundy, Bordeaux, the Loire, Alsace, anywhere that had vineyards. And we kept on thinking, you know, that ho- that little village with the hotel, that was such a nice village. And after 18 months, we came back and decided, forget the vineyards, let's just go for the village, love the atmosphere. So it was a coup de coeur for the village, really. Okay, and you settled in easily, I would imagine. Um, I didn't really speak French when we moved in, so I had two small children at school and all I could talk about was malolactic fermentation and barriques and that sort of thing. So that was a bit difficult. And... You don't realise, I think, until you move into a rural village that outsiders are outsiders for a long time. So now we're local, but took a long time. So you, um, you're a specialist in uh, many things, but you did write a book. I think it's the only book I know of its type on pink wines, rosé. Uh, why did you write a book on rosé? It started off as a joke, um, which sounds dreadful. Uh, I was talking to Classic Wine Library about another book, and I jokingly said, oh, what about a book on Provence? And they said, we'll call you back. And 10 minutes later, they called back and said, maybe not Provence, what about a book on rosé? And I, I wasn't a rosé drinker. So 2016, I was not a rosé drinker. And I thought, well, that would be easy because there isn't a lot to write about on rosé. And so I said, yeah, sure, I can do that. And then it just spiralled out of control, really, from there. So now I drink a lot of rosé of many different types. 
Um, but it did not start off as a passion, a private passion. I mean, what we, did you have sort of negative expectations of rosé? Because it's always been dismissed a little bit in the wine trade um, as sort of frivolous, uh, not a proper wine. It's neither red and it's definitely not white. Um, did you have some of that prejudice or did you soon kick that and, and really get into the, uh, the, the spirit of things? Uh, yeah, I was completely prejudiced. You know, it's uh, living where I live, which is much more rustic and rural, very, very scornful of the Saint-Tropez, rosé on the beach image. That was not something I really liked. So I would say before I started writing the book, I avoided drinking any rosé wine at all. It was just not the image I liked. And then when I started doing the research, yes, there was an enormous amount of incredibly dull bottles sent to me. I mean, mind-blowingly dull. And then occasionally you'd get a producer who would say, my wine is completely different. It's spontaneous fermentation in amphora and it's dark and nobody else likes it. Do you want to try it? And so then you st- I started to realise that there was actually so much more to taste. And I still don't really like the very commercial pale pink style. It's still not my taste. Why? Because it's oversweet or just boring? Well, it's it's made to a formula. So I have spoken to producers who wanted to make rosé because it was commercial. And I said, well, how did you make it? And they said, well, we looked on a website for a Provence estate, minimal skin contact, cool temperature fermentation in tank. They bought this yeast, so we did the same. And there was an enormous amount of that, enormous um, identical, identikit rosés. But isn't that isn't that kind of part of the deal, though? That that is just what you sign up to if you're a, if you're a dedicated rosé drinker with not much ambition, and just in the same way as sort of most a lot of chardonnay can just be derivative. Yes, it's I guess it's the equivalent of you know as you say chardonnay or sauvignon blanc or mass produced cabernet sauvignon, um, and but I think what I what I find particularly interesting about rosé is that there are a growing number of producers who are prepared to challenge that. And that's really exciting. And when I speak to consumers and I say, what what do you expect from rosé? And you challenge them. And they're usually quite surprised that they've never thought of it being in another style. They accept the fact it's always the same. And you have to really push uh, consumers and say, would you always drink the same Sauvignon Blanc for the rest of your life? So why would you do the same with rosé? And and that's what I find most exciting. So when we um, get into rosé or rosato in uh, Italy, um, mm-hmm. I, I was quite a surprise that there are uh, far more than I actually thought there would be. Um, but you, in your book, um, which is, by the way, an excellent book, the full title of it for everybody, it's called uh, Rosé, Understanding the Pink Wine Revolution. And that was published by Infinite Ideas, and it's based. Uh, the company's based in Oxford. And um, you said that in, in Italy, there are 500 potential rosé or rosato wine styles um, in the Italian rule books for the various denominations. Um, and half of these, uh, more than half of these, are actually DOC, which is I found incredible that there were so many the potential for DOC 
uh, rosé wines in Italy was that was that big. It was phenomenal. It's phenomenal. So what I found when I was researching the book, nobody, well, nobody, a lot of people did not take me seriously. I did get a lot of people in the wine trade saying, but you're a master of wine. Why are you bothering with rosé? And I did get that also with a large number of wine producers. So I was faced with these 400 plus Appalachians in Italy. And I thought, I just have no idea where to start. Absolutely no idea. So I approached a number of people, you know, just as a normal consumer, you're looking for Italian rosé, where do you start? And really had to work hard. So I homed in on various regions and the book was published. And then loads and loads of producers approached me and said, but you didn't include us. So my draft Italian chapter, if I ever do another book, is much, much bigger. I have learned so much more in the past two years since the book came out. That chapter is completely different. So what are the main centres of production in Italy for rosé? Um, uh, what, what, what is the main region? I mean, I've got it written down in front of me, but I want you to, t- to tell us what it is. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I asked various um, people in Italy about volume, and they said they couldn't tell me because it, they was, it was by the colour of grapes planted, so red grapes. So Chiaretto up by Lake Garda, um, Bardolino Chiaretto di Bardolino is a big one. Puglia is massive. Uh, I made the mistake of looking at Appalachians, but of course, being Italy, a lot of people are choosing not to do it in Appalachians, to do IGT. Calabria has quite a lot. And then I think, do you include Pinot Grigio? That must weigh the figures in a different way. That's quite an interesting one. And then there are all the red wine areas that are also, you know, Piedmont and Tuscany who are increasingly making rosé. But I think rosé is just everywhere, isn't it? I mean, Chiaretto is growing really fast at the moment. I think they've doubled, uh, they've, their production or their sales have gone up five times in the past five years. But that, does that reflect changes in Italy or just a response to international markets? I mean, rosé has been... Um, I'm not saying a boom wine, but it's it's always it's perennially popular, obviously for the summer. Um, but it's lost some of its kind of um, the negative connotations with rosé. We're being more more um, adventurous in our wine drinking, and um, surely there's got to be um, if the Italians are making more rosé, then it must signify uh, more interest at the commercial level. I actually think volume by volume, rosé in Italy has gone down really? um, in recent years. But I think quality has gone up. So there's been a shift in Italy from bulk volume that isn't particularly good to much better rosé. Chiaretto have changed since 2014 from being a slightly darker byproduct of red wine to being Provence-style pale pink, which has increased their volume of sales to export sales and tourism. Which I'm not, to be quite honest, I'm not 100% happy about because I think it's standardised and neutralised the character. Cherisuolo are also playing with going paler, which is really sad. I love Negromaro Rosé from Puglia. I think that that has phenomenal potential. 
and some of the Etna roses, not all of them, but some of them are really, really exciting. So there is a lot of playing around with this combination of traditional Provence-style innovation. So I wouldn't say there's one region at the moment, but there is it's there are some exciting things happening. Okay, so if if we we're not going to be masters of wine, but I mean, if um, well, you are, but but um, you know, in, in the exam, and you 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 you're given three roses. One comes from Etna, uh, one comes from Puglia, and one comes from I don't know, say a, a Ramato style, which maybe you can explain what it is. What are the differences just in general between those three? Okay, so let's start with Ramato, which is a much more. It's quite a coppery coloured wine, and is a sort of very classic Adriatic style, Pinot Gris, longer skin contact, which really bridges the gap between being an orange wine and a rosé, which is why I really, really dislike defining wine by colour. I think that is a very old-fashioned way of um, judging wine, and the vinification is far more important. So because that's got greater skin contact, I think it for me it has slightly more texture, slightly more phenolic character to it. If you're going to Puglia, say for a Negromaro rosé, fantastic acidity. I mean, can have really, really beautiful acidity. So the last year I had a Negromaro rosé from 1976. And the acidity was so good. It was still vibrant, still fresh. A lot of sort of floral roses, a bit of bitter orange. And if they include the muscatel grape in it, even more floral. Uh, so that's very pretty. And then when you go to Etna, I don't know. This is, this is the multi-million dollar question. Do we taste more minerality or is it just a flavor that we think we taste more of? So if you have higher altitude, volcanic soil, more minerality, the higher up you go, you can have more ripe fruit and concentration and good acidity. So a bit more wine style if it's in a traditional style. So that's what I would really look for. I mean, what would the, what would the base um, variety be for an Etna Rosé typically? It's Norello Mascarese is the... Um, the main grape variety. So there's the one from uh, Foido Cavalieri, which is a thousand meters high on the south slopes of Etna. Just has amazing ripe concentration and minerality and acidity. And I think the current vintage is 2016 because it's it's just got power and fruit and is gorgeous. Often when we do um, blind tasting competitions, whether it's decanter or five star which is uh, the Vinitaly um, mm. tasting. How do Italian wines fare, the, the rosé, the rosato wines, how do they fare in those competitions? Um, so I had for the five-star, we had a flight from Puglia. That was massively disappointing. The wines that were sent in later discovered that there were some brand names that I think aimed at the American market why they had that residual sugar in, I have no idea, but they were so disappointing. I had, I don't think, I'm not an Italian, you know, I'm not, I don't speak Italian, which is a big hindrance. I can understand quite a bit, but I don't speak it. But I, my impression is that a lot of Italian producers of rosé, either they sell really good stuff and it's a niche product and it sells out and they don't need to bother with competitions 
or they lack the confidence to say, let's put our wine in a competition. I I really felt for the competition, the best rosés in my my series of panels were not the best, which was a shame. Okay, so um, let's just do a few random regions. Lake Garda uh, versus Val Tennessee. So Val Tennessee, um, which is the Grappello variety, um, quite nice and sort of strawberry fruity, very, very classic mineral strawberry fruit. The Bardolino with Corvina, I think, in a blind tasting, very similar to Beaujolais Rosé. Corvina and Gamay, very, very similar. Cherries, much more mineral style. So strawberries versus cherries on both sides of Lake Garda. What about um, Piemonte? We we don't associate it, or I don't in my mind. Whenever you say Piemonte, you're just thinking Barbaresco, Barolo, thank you very much, and don't think about rosé. Do they, anybody up there make decent rosé, and if so, where? Um, they do um, make rosé. A lot of the time it's because their exporters or their importers say, can you add a rosé on? So I've met quite a few producers who have absolutely no idea how to make a rosé, so they just sort of make it and add it in. But so many different styles and so many varieties. I don't think you could say there's a Piemontese style at all. It's That is still still being created. So it just depends on the variety. What about Tuscany, the Carmignano area, for example? Um, I've not had any from there. I'm doing quite a bit of work with Marema Rosé, which has been quite interesting because it's a region very close to the sea. So, which gives it added freshness. So they have a range of varieties, Sangiovese, Grenache, Alicante, Pugnatello, Chiliagiolo, plus all the super Tuscan type varieties. And they're proving to be quite good. Um, so I think Tuscany actually has a lot of potential, especially for quite gastronomic rosés. They, they, as far as I can see, they tend to be... They're either the very delicate Provence style or there's some really quite gutsy rosés coming out, which I rather like. So I know you've got a soft spot for the Maremo, the uh, the Tuscan coast. What about, um, yeah. there must be a difference between, um, I don't know, rosé from from the coast or one from up near um, Florence, for example, Carmignano, Barco Reale, um, wines like that. What would the differences be? So the ones I've tasted from further in, and I I have to say I'm not an expert here and I haven't tasted a lot. The ones I have tasted were trying to be far more international and Provence style. So from other areas in Tuscany, I was not, I have not yet picked up more regional styles. Um, And that is something I would really love to see. But there were so many in international Provence-style pale pink from elsewhere in Tuscany. I'm, weak. I'm very happy to be disproved. Okay, we'll have to go. We'll somebody from uh, the powers that be will have to get you uh, and you and your rucksack uh, down to um, parts of Italy. Fantastic. Um, what about, um, you know, sweetness levels? I know we sort of touched on that a, a little bit at the beginning. Um, is there anything that rosé producers in general in Italy should be doing that they're not doing at the moment? In your view, I know you go on about this international style and the sort of the, the Provence uh, sort of um, mimicking, and I can I can see why that's irritating because um, Italy's got a huge variety of great varieties and they should be being a bit more ambitious. Is that what your beef is? I think for me, 
My ideal, and okay, I'm an idealist on this, I would love it if rosés were produced in the same way as a white and a red wine, that if I was tasting blind, I would be able to pick up markers for what the variety is. Um, I'm not a great one for just saying, well, I'm drinking this wine because it's got alcohol and it's pleasant to drink. I'm not interested, really. I, I want a wine with character. I want to be able to taste a wine and say, wow, that is just full of chiliagiolo, cherry fruit. It's floral. It's pretty. It's really delicate. Or this is a rosé made with uh, Montepulciano and... Um, uh, you know, the, the, I just I want to be able to taste the grape variety. For me, that is what is exciting, and I don't feel and as yet the wines that I'm seeing are being all being produced like this. So you, you do quite a few masterclasses um, at trade shows and conferences, and I'm sure so you do a lot for the for your fellow masters of wine or the students at least. Um, what are the common conceptions regarding um, pink rosé risotto wines? So I think there's a lot of surprise that – I mean, it's, it's quite interesting, actually. You know, Italy produces so much rosé. I think it's, what, in the top three? Spain, France, and Italy, I think they juggle with it. And if you talk to people about Italian rosé, they will say Pinot Grigio, pink uh, rosé, and Chiaretto, and then nobody will be able to think of any other rosé unless it's a specialist wine person. So I think most people are pretty amazed that Italy produces any other rosé, even if they've drunk it, won't have paid attention. I think in America, Negromara rosé because of um, Five Roses, which has a very, very big market. But if you asked somebody about Five Roses, they probably wouldn't know where it came from or anything about it, or even maybe might not even know it's Italian. Five Roses doesn't sound Italian. So there's a big marketing gap for the outside world to actually know Italian rosés exist or the variety that's there. Was, is Five Roses the one that has the sort of military link? Was it the American soldiers? Yes. One? So when um, the American general that was sent into southern Italy at the end of the war Actually, he was chosen because he came from Italy, so he could speak Italian. So he arrived, and one of the things he had to do was basically keep the troops happy, just to keep things going. And they had beer, but he wanted to find wine. And the local mayor of uh, Salento was a wine producer. So he said, I've got this wine, I make this rosé. But they didn't have bottles. The only bottles they had were the empty beer bottles that the American GIs had. So they re-bottled the rosé into beer bottles. And there are various stories why it was called Five Roses. I think he had five daughters and it was called Five Roses or whatever. So the GIs drank that rosé and they liked it. So when they went back to America, it was imported. It followed them. This was the rosé they liked. So it became the first bottled rosé in Italy and the first Italian rosé after the war. The American GIs were very influential. They they brought back Mateus rosé and Lancers from Portugal and five roses from Italy. Very influential in the rosé market. 
it's amazing that little bit of history that um, a lot of people probably would never have dreamed about or imagined um, these sort of almost random coincidences. Well, if you go to the um, Leone de Castris cellars, they have the most amazing museum of the the original old bottles, the photographs, the letters between the American army and the vineyard. Um, they kept all of that. So fascinating to go and see. How, where do you stand on um, Lambrusco Rosato? I've had some really nice... I mean, I like Lambrusco. Good Lambrusco, I really, really like. <laughs> and I've had some good Rosé Lambrusco. I like it. Um, I don't like it, you know, obviously not the sort of the sweet, fizzy stuff, but I find a good acidic Lambrusco. I mean, it's great with local food, with aperitifs, with uh, Parma ham sort of thing. Um, so I like it. Not too alcoholic. Not too alcoholic, yes. Where do you think the future of rosé lies, or rosata, in, in general and um, in, it in Italy in particular? I was told by somebody that Italians will not drink rosé because they like to have wines with a historic lineage. That There is this creation of an association with six regions that make rosé historically with local grapes. So you have the two Chiaretto, Cersuolo d'Abruzzo, um, Castel del Monte, Salento, and Chiro. And this is this historic movement. And they are making enormous strides in building up this idea that rosé is as much part of Italian heritage as red and white wine. So I think that is quite significant in terms of marketing Italian rosé, so that it's no, it's not being swept under the carpet as a cheap, cheerful jug wine. And the fact that Marema are now, they have an association to promote rosé. There's a bit of growing pride amongst Italian producers that their rosé is worthy to be shown. And that, for me, is the direction that rosé is going. It's this growth in producers saying, not just volume, we really want to produce a top quality rosé. So that is brilliant. I'm really excited by that. And I, I think that will move forward once restaurants reopen in the world. I mean, you, you've got a degree in history and you said that you love the sort of cultural history behind uh, the wine that we drink today, the wine styles that we that we know and love, the, the evolution of, uh, of traditions. Um, is that something that drew you to rosé, or is it um, something that is lacking in the promotion of rosé? And you know, it's almost rosé is almost a wine without any kind of backstory. I think that's a big. I mean, Provence markets rosé, saying they were the first people to make rosé two thousand years ago with the Roman Empire which is a bit of a strange thing to say because you'd have thought the Italians would also be making it if it was the Roman Empire. There is a, an enormous amount of history with rosé. I think it's an older style than red and white wine. I would love it if more people were interested in that. I spent a lot of time when I was researching the book looking into the history Partially because I think if people are aware of the history, they have more confidence in creating a regional style, having confidence, having pride that their local style is equally valid and has a reason. So 
for me, that is important. I would like to see more darker rosés, clarettes, Schiller, Cherosuolo. I think that would be, if people could understand that that was historical and traditional, they would be happier to produce it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a bit of marketing needed to uh, to get that message out, I guess. Yes. Um, you're involved with something called Rock rock and Rosé. What is Rock and Rosé? Uh, so Rock and Rosé started uh, during lockdown and uh, Sumi contacted me and said, can I just do an Instagram live with you about Rosé one evening? So we had a chat about it and my feeling was there was a lot of – so I have to admit I am not 21 – And if you look on Instagram, there's an enormous number of 21-year-olds in bikinis drinking rosé and getting this lifestyle thing. So I said, I would love it if I can do Instagram Live on rosé and debunk wine snobbery, because there's an enormous amount of wine snobbery going round, and move away from the 21-year-olds in bikinis. And let's talk about rosé in a fun, approachable, but knowledgeable way. So we do once a week, we do a half hour chat, we talk about the winemaking, how it goes with food, where the wine comes from, the style, just to introduce, I mean, the most of the people who watch it are wine merchants, it's not reaching a wider public than that. And most of them are saying we didn't know there was the, the so much variety. And so we just do this chat, it's very easy, and reaches out to a wider audience, I hope. What are, what are a couple of killer um, food and wine matchings between uh, rosato and, and food? Well, this is sort of quite a difficult one uh, because we're both vegetarians, so we don't do any of the, the big meat dishes. What we did find was that rosés which have slightly more fruit and acidity, such as Negramaro, actually they're the one wine that goes with anything with tomatoes which is quite unusual. It doesn't have the tannin and it doesn't have the the white fruit character. So some of these high acidity rosés go really well with tomato things, classic, the cheese dishes, and some of the more tannic rosés. So this is why I say um, definition of rosé is quite difficult and reaching out to people with different styles. But I see nothing wrong with a rosé that maybe has a bit more tannic structure from being bled off the the red wine, or Sangiovese, which is a much, much more structural rosé, really does work well with more robust food. So those are things that have been quite unusual. But Sumi, being Indian, has actually thrown spices at these wines, and the rosés have survived it remarkably well. So none of the usual, oh, you've got to have grilled fish with a salad to go with rosé. We've actually found far more adventurous flavours go very well, which comes back to another problem with the rosé image. If it's pale and delicate, amazingly enough, there are people who have said to me, it must be low calorie then. I haven't worked that one out. So if it's low calorie, this is when you have plain grilled fish and salad. So then you've got a low calorie meal. That's interesting about that. Uh... It's uh, it's mind-blowing. So, yes, I would say, I mean, I've had fried food with rosé. The freshness, vibrancy doesn't fight it. Cheese, vegetables. It's an incredibly flexible wine style. 
Okay, so um, niche topic, uh, rosé or rosato wines, but you are amazingly an expert on the wines of Hungary, Slovakia, Israel, uh, Ribera del Duero, um, southeastern France. How, how do you do it? How can you keep all those plates spinning? Well, Hungary, yes, I've been working in Hungary for oh, 15 years. So I don't really specialise in Tokai, so mainly in the rest of the country. And I've, yeah, no, that, that I've really enjoyed. Slovakia is a new one. And in fact, I'm making a rosé in Slovakia this year, which will be launched next year. Uh, it's made from Blau Frankish and Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon's on volcanic soil, spontaneous fermentation in barrel. And so it'll be bottled next summer. Would that be quite a tannic rosé then with those two uh, varieties? It's well. It's been. Um, it does not. Not much skin contact. It's. In, well, no. It did have skin contact. It had twenty hours skin contact. So it's actually very dark, and I haven't been able to taste it because I can't go to Slovakia. But I've been told the fruit is great. It's going to be fairly full-bodied rosé, I think. But it's not going to have rosé on the label. It's a dark pink wine fermented not on the skins. I didn't want rosé on. So between those two countries, there is actually quite a diverse difference between Hungary and Slovakia. So yes, I do have to juggle mentally because there are Hungarians in Slovakia and some of the grape varieties are different. Israel, just because I've I know a load of winemakers from there. That's fairly classic, a lot of very French-style winemaking. And I have to say, my son was a sommelier out in Israel last year, so that kept me up to date with a lot of what was happening. Southern France, southeastern and southwestern, I'm doing a lot of work in Languedoc at the moment. And Ribera del Duero, I was out there last year and Sigales, but I only for rosé. I can't say that's my expertise. I would love to know more about Spanish rosé, just as I would like to know more about Italian. So I would really say Hungary, Slovakia, a bit of Romania, southern France, and then Spain and Italy and Israel sort of added on. It is, it's impossible to be a, an expert in all of these. No, anyone who says they're a wine expert, I don't believe. I'm sorry. You can't be. Well, it'll be great. The powers that be that listen to this podcast, I'm sure we'll get you um, to spend a lot more time in Italy, Elizabeth. Oh, that would be fantastic. It's nice to have someone who, um, who's both knowledgeable and um, forthright. You, know, you, you, you speak it as, uh, as you see it. And um, that's always, that's always a, a, for me, a, a very good thing, especially in the wine trade where we're often afraid, afraid of offending people. And um, but I like the way you speak truth about rosé. It's very it's underrated because there aren't there aren't that many really really great rosés around. And you've made that point very very clearly, I think. And uh, and, I, and I'm I'm on your side. I agree. And I think there's a lot more that we can get out of rosé, not just um, in Italy but elsewhere as well. I hope so. One day I want to be able to do a masterclass of my favourite rosés. That's that will be fun when the world opens up again. All right, Elizabeth, it's been fantastic to talk to you and uh, nice to hear you speak so so forthrightly about one of your um, lifelong passions. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. Take care. Thanks a lot, Monty. Bye. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin. Cin cin.